Good to see all of you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 41 today. Genesis chapter 41. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the chair racks there in front of you. You should be able to grab one if you need it. And uh, we like to say this every week, but uh, if you are new to the Bible, that's okay. Uh, We love having people with us who are new to the Bible and new to church. We want this to be a place where both uh, people who are very familiar with the Bible can come, but also people who are exploring their uh, understanding of the Bible, exploring Christianity. And so Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and if you start there at the beginning and work your way forward, you should find chapter 41 pretty quickly. Uh, You may find this difficult to believe, but if you've been around for a while, But we are nearing the end of Genesis. And you may say, I'll believe that when I see it, but I think you are going to see it soon. Uh, We are going to have probably, and notice I'm giving myself wiggle room because things change, but we probably have, after this message today, we probably have four more uh, sermons in the book of Genesis. That would bring us up to uh, 45 total sermons, which for some of you are like, give me a break. And for some of you are like, really, just 45? Uh, but we have, uh, we have moved our way, our, our way through the book. We've, taken, uh, we've gone really slowly at times, and we've got, taken big chunks of material at times. Um, but we've got probably about four messages left before we move on to our next series, which will coincide nicely with Everything starting up here pretty soon in the fall with school. I know you don't want me to bring, me, bring that up, but we've got school coming, and we should be starting a new series soon. All right, Genesis 41, that should be where uh, you are. If you would like to follow along with us today, of course, the, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me as I preach as well. Abraham Lincoln was once introduced at an event with these words. The person introducing him said, nothing discloses real character like the use of power. It is easy for the weak to be gentle. Most people can bear adversity. But if you wish to know what a man really is, give him power. This is the supreme test. You probably are aware of this because we have seen examples of this throughout human history, but power reveals character, doesn't it? Our character is often revealed very clearly by what we do and the way we act when we're in charge. Joseph, the man we've been studying over the past few weeks, as his life encompasses Genesis chapter 37 all the way up to 50, Joseph is a man who is about to be very much in charge. Two years have passed since the last chapter when when Joseph asked the cupbearer to put in a word for him when he is back with the king. So the gap between Genesis 40 and Genesis 41 is two years. Joseph was hoping that the cupbearer, as he's restored back to a place of favor in 
in uh, Pharaoh's cabinet would remember him, would mention his case, and perhaps be able to free him so that he can get out of the pit, as he calls it, that he is in. Yet, two years later, Joseph is still in prison. But as I mentioned to you last week, God was at work in ways that Joseph could not have imagined. In fact, in all of our lives, in all of the difficulties that we are facing, God is always at work in ways that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. We can see a few steps ahead of us, but God can see the whole layout not only of our lives, but the way our lives intertwine with the lives around us and the lives of everyone else in human history to bring about His good purposes. The cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but in chapter 41, something is about to jog his memory because Pharaoh is going to have some dreams. If you're there in chapter 41, look with me at the first verse. The Bible says this in Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1. After two whole years, and I think that's the way we're supposed to read it, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, never thought about cows that way, but out of the Nile come seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the banks of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Now, there's a second dream that I won't read to you, but the second dream is very much like this dream. And Pharaoh dreams the second dream right after it. And basically, you trade out the cows for ears of corn. So it gets weirder. Seven plump and attractive ears of corn are eaten up by seven thin ears of corn. So remember, as we've been working through the Joseph story, I told you at the very beginning that A lot of the pieces of action in this story are organized around three sets of two dreams. The action kicks off with Joseph having two dreams. Then Joseph eventually finds himself in prison where he encounters two men who also have a pair of dreams. And now we have Pharaoh who has the third pair of dreams around which the action of Uh, of Joseph's life is organized. Now, like your dreams, Pharaoh's dreams are pretty weird. You have some pretty weird, strange dreams. And the way we think about dreams in our culture is that the brain is doing some sort of dump. And so all sorts of weird images get put together in our minds as as the brain does whatever the brain does. There's scientific explanations of of all that kind of stuff that I don't know, nor do I understand, but they're out there. Google it. Not right now. But Pharaoh 
doesn't live in our culture. Bear lives in a culture where dreams have significance. And we, as we've seen in the dreams leading up to this point, this is not just, this is not just a, a, a weird cultural value of his. These dreams do, in fact, have significance. And when Pharaoh wakes up, because he has had these two dreams with this strange imagery that are very similar to each other, Pharaoh knows that they just have to mean something. And so Pharaoh does what any good Pharaoh will do. He calls the dream department because he has a dream department. And the dream department comes in and they do everything they can to look at these dreams and try to figure out what it is that they mean. But nobody in all of Pharaoh's dream department has any idea what these fat, attractive, plump cows getting eaten by the skinny cows that have come out of the Nile along with the corn. Nobody knows what that means. And they're asking among themselves, boy, if, if there was just somebody we knew that could interpret dreams, and the cupbearer is, is, is part of this royal retinue, and the cupbearer all of a sudden says, I think I know a dream guy. And so he throws it out there. There's a, a guy that I met a couple of years ago that predicted that you would lift the baker's head from him and hang him, that you would lift my head and restore me to service, and he's sitting rotting in jail right now as we speak. Pharaoh is desperate. His whole dream department can't tell him what's going on here. He's willing to try anything, and so he says, okay, get your dream guy, bring him in. And so the Bible text tells us that they pull Joseph out of the prison, and they clean him up because he's a mess from being in prison, and they get him presentable that he can stand before Pharaoh and make an appearance in the royal court. And when Joseph is finally cleaned up and he's wearing clean clothes and he's shaved and all that stuff, he stands before Pharaoh and Pharaoh basically asks him, are you the man for the job? I've heard that you can tell us what dreams mean. And look with me, look with me at verse 16 uh, of what Joseph says here, because it's very telling about his mindset. In verse 16, he says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now note there how quick Joseph is to deflect the attention away from him and to point the spotlight on the God that he serves. What would you be doing in that situation? Well, I can tell you what I'd be doing in that situation. My strategy would be to talk about God later and to raise my stock in Pharaoh's eyes now because this is my shot to get out of here. But Joseph is very quick to say, let me straighten something out for you. It's not in me, but God is the one who knows the interpretations of dreams. And so in verses 25 to 32, Joseph explains the meaning of the two dreams, and as many of you are aware, the, the meaning of the dreams basically boils down to this. There's coming seven years of great plenty. They're going ha- to see harvests in Egypt like they have never seen before. It is going to be a bumper crop 
for seven years in a row. But after those seven years, there are going to be seven years of famine where the famine is going to be as bad as the years of plenty were good. This is the meaning of the dreams. But Joseph goes one step further in verses 33 to 36. Not only does he, not only does he tell Pharaoh the meaning of the dreams, but I love this. He, he basically says, if I may be so bold, here's what I think you ought to do about it. Now that takes some guts, doesn't it? <laughs> this guy's been out of prison for about 10 minutes. He's a Hebrew in the Egyptian court. He's just had his opportunity. He doesn't want to blow it. But not only does he stand up there and tell him the message from God, but he actually lays out a, a multi-point plan to Pharaoh of what they ought to do. And the plan is basically this. Tax 20% in these seven years. Take, take a 20% surplus of all of these bumper crop years and take all that grain and just store it away and store it away and store it away so that in the seven years of famine, we'll be able to have something to live off of. We'll have our surplus. And he says, furthermore, I think what you ought to do is appoint somebody to be in charge of this, and then that somebody can appoint a bunch of people throughout all the provinces or counties or whatever they have in Egypt. I don't know exactly what they had, but they've got different regions, and he says, put, put people in these different regions so you have the one person overseeing all these other people to collect this 20% tax so we can have a surplus in the years of famine. Pharaoh thinks this is a fantastic idea. And so he asks a question in verse 38. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And everybody's looking around. I wonder, who, I wonder who might be able to do this. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Think about the amount of time we're working with here. This is a whirlwind. Okay, he, he hasn't even had lunch yet. And he has just been set over the entire nation of Egypt with only one person that he reports to. Pharaoh is now his direct report. And Pharaoh starts setting things into motion very quickly. In the next few verses, the Bible tells us that Joseph is given the clothing of royalty. Pharaoh gives him his, his new whip to ride around in. He's got this really nice chariot that he can ride in. Uh, if they had an Air Force One and an Air Force Two, then, then Joseph would be able to ride around in Air Force Two. He is paraded through the land of Egypt, and he is paraded through the land of Egypt. He has people going ahead of him, calling out to the people in the streets, bow the knee. This is crazy. A crazy reversal of fortunes. And it happens like that. 
As the Bible tells us, he's granted power second only to Pharaoh himself. And the Bible tells him that this new position comes with a name change. As we often see God's people when they're brought into other countries, we see it with Daniel and his friends. The the people in the new nation are like, uh, don't really care about what your name is. We're going to call you this. And Joseph is named Zaphonath Paneah. This is pretty cool. Because that Egyptian name has a meaning. And the meaning it has is this, God speaks and lives. You want to talk about making an impression. Joseph stands before Pharaoh, and he is determined to give the glory to God as he stands before Pharaoh. He assures Pharaoh, and this is not in me, this is something that, this is something that belongs to God, and as a result of that, Pharaoh names him, God speaks and lives. That's pretty remarkable. A marriage is quickly arranged for him. He is married into a priestly family, and they eventually have two children together. The Bible tells us in these following verses that he enters into the service of Pharaoh at the age of 30. We first see him taken uh, into captivity to be sold as a slave around 17. So now we see that, that Joseph is now up to the point where he has almost lived half of his life now, either enslaved or in prison. But now at the age of 13 years old, or at the age of 30 years old, not only is Joseph able to provide for the Egyptians during the famine, but the Bible says in the last verse of the chapter that all of the earth buys grain from Egypt when the famine comes. So that's telling you that the surplus that they take during those first seven years is so good and so plentiful that not only are they, they able to provide for their own needs, but they've got the nations coming to them to buy grain as well. So I said at the beginning, the way Abraham Lincoln was introduced, if you wish to know what a man really is, give him power. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes now. And I keep telling you, the lousy kind of person that I am, or at least the things that I would want to do if I was in Joseph's shoes. Do you think it's possible that Joseph, over the past 13 years, has been keeping a list? You got Potiphar, he did me wrong. Mrs. Potiphar did me wrong. Cupbearer, we're going to have a talk. You think about all the other people that he encountered in this that we know nothing of. People who mistreated him potentially when he was in Potiphar's household. The mistreatment that he may have experienced in the prison at various times. I mean, if it's me, when I'm in charge, that list is going to be coming up to my mind really quick. And I'm going to be thinking, all right, 
let's see how you like it now that the shoe's on the other foot. Now that I'm the second in command and I can do virtually anything I want, it's time for a little bit of payback. But Joseph doesn't use his power for payback. He could have used his newfound power to cause harm to everyone who had mistreated him for the last 13 years. But when he is put into a place of power, he does not choose to use his power for evil. Rather, he uses his power for good. He uses his power for the good of his captors. Wouldn't you have a a bad taste in your mouth about Egyptians if you're a Hebrew slave who's been thrown in prison without due process? And you've got 13 years to think about it. 13 years to let that root of bitterness kind of cultivate and grow in your heart. And yet Joseph uses his power for good. We've seen, and we've been thinking about this, when you get to the end of Joseph's story in chapter 50 and verse 20, I say it each week, but I'll say it again. Joseph is reflecting over his life, over the past few decades of his life, and he has the audacity to say that what other people meant for evil, God meant for good, and that that God's good purposes somehow use and overrule their bad purposes. You've got two sets of purposes running along along the same tracks, what, what humanity is meaning for evil, God is somehow flipping and using for good. And he's doing it again and again and again. And when the Bible, ta- when the Bible says that, or when Joseph says that God meant it for good, it encompasses some terrible things. Like being betrayed by his brothers and being falsely accused and be being put in a place of temptation and being thrown into prison and having an opportunity to get out of prison, but being left there. I mean, he has difficult thing after difficult thing happen, and he calls, those are all Joseph's it that God uses for good. God uses our trials for good. But it is not just our trials that God uses for good. It is also the blessings that he brings into our lives. And so this morning, I'd like to consider this truth. God intends for us to use power for good. God intends for us to use power for good. Joseph's use of his newfound power for the good of others rather than his own personal gain, of which he has a significant amount, But he chooses to use his newfound power for good. And in doing so, he points us forward to Jesus as he does again and again and again. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to wield power for good. Early in his ministry, 
The Gospels tell us that Jesus is led into the wilderness. And as Jesus is led into the wilderness and He is there in a weakened state due to the fact that He has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights while He is there in the wilderness, Satan comes to tempt Him. And the Bible records three of those temptations for us. And those temptations include the misuse of power. Satan comes to him in his hungry state and says, you know what you could do? You could just use your power as the Son of God and and do a magic trick. You could turn these stones into bread. Satan tells him, tempts him to to cast himself down from the heights because the angels will catch you. You're all-powerful after all, aren't you? D.A. Carson, writing on this passage, says, Satan's aim was to entice Jesus to use powers, rightly his, but which he had voluntarily abandoned to carry out the Father's mission. Reclaiming them for himself would deny the self-abasement implicit in his mission and in his Father's will. Jesus says no to Satan's temptation there. Consider another image. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, hanging on a cross, humiliated, dying, with the crowd around him jeering. One of the things that those in the crowd mock him with is found in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 42. The crowd says he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. Did Jesus have the power at that moment to come down from the cross? You better believe he did. Jesus could have come down from the cross in that moment and vaporized his enemies had he so chosen. But he intended to use his power for our good. And so rather than using his power for vengeance, he chooses to display that power in his own resurrection thus defeating sin and death. The Bible tells us that God has both the power and the authority to exercise His just, that is, His righteous, His fair judgment on us because of our sin. We have, if we're honest with ourselves and stop comparing ourselves to people who are worse than us, we have disobeyed Him in numerous ways at numerous times. The Bible confronts our human pride by holding up a mirror to us, demanding that we look at ourselves in the mirror and showing us 
that we are, in fact, no better than anyone else. That we are, in fact, sinners. It would be just, it would be right, it would be fair to God for God to use His power to punish. And the Bible says that He will indeed punish all those who do not put their faith in Him. But friends, hear the good news of the gospel this morning. For those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, He uses His power not for judgment, but for forgiveness. To save us from our sins and to resurrect us from spiritual death. Romans 6 talks about the fact that anyone who comes to Christ and is a new creation is raised to walk in newness of life. When you come to Jesus Christ in faith, there is nothing less than a resurrection that happens. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. If you're here with us this morning, and you are in this moment feeling the weight of God's just judgment for your sins, And if you are feeling trapped by the power of sin over you, we invite you to believe the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus, if you will reach out to him in repentance and faith, right where you're sitting, right now, will break the power of sin and accomplish where you are sitting in your seat nothing less than a resurrection. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Many of you here have experienced spiritual resurrection. And those who have experienced the power of God unto salvation will be able to join our voices with thousands of others around God's throne saying this, In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One of the things that we will spend an eternity praising God for is the fact that He used His power for our good. then those of us who have put our trust in Jesus are called to do the same. The Bible says this in Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage to many of you in verses 5 to 8. The Bible says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're being encouraged to, to adopt the outlook that Jesus has. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Jesus humbles himself and uses his power for our good. And then the Bible tells us, have that kind of mindset and that kind of attitude. Use your power for good. And You might say to me, what power? Most of us are probably not going to be elevated to second in some nation today or tomorrow. Could happen. We tend to think of power only in absolute terms. But the truth of the matter is, most of us in here have some kind of power and influence to steward. Just to say, you, in some, there's a power dynamic in some relationships that you have. There is an influence dynamic in some relationships that you have, whether that be in the home, in the workplace, in the community, in the church. There are all sorts of, of areas where we are given varying levels of power and influence that God expects us to steward and use for good. Let me give you a small and somewhat silly example, and then we'll move to a larger one. Kids, you've been in school, you've been in school-like settings, your home schools, But you know what it's like to have the older kids look down on the younger kids. Sometimes it's bullying, but sometimes it's just they think they're better than you. My kids have gone to a local junior high, and in in the junior high, the 8th graders call the 7th graders sevies. And that is not a term of endearment. (laughs) The eighth graders are not saying, I can't wait for the sevies to arrive so that we can show them the ropes, teach them what it's like to be here at the school so they have school spirit, and so we can just serve them and show them how much they're loved. That is not the way the term sevy is used. Okay, what the eighth graders, what the the new eighth graders have been looking forward to doing is what the old eighth graders had done to them when they were the sevies, where they can look down on them, where they can make fun of them, where they can say and do things to exclude them and make them feel small. Now, they're just eighth graders, and it's just junior high. But that's stewarding your influence for harm.
Character is revealed when you become an eighth grader. Character becomes revealed when you're the one that's in charge. And how you act towards the people that you regard as beneath you. A small example. Let's do a political example. Uh Uh-oh. Gone and done it. We're entering into another election year where there will once again be a knockdown, drag out fight for the so called soul of America. One of the distressing things to me about all this is that when the so called Christians are in power, it doesn't feel that different. <laughs> It's the same mudslinging. It's the same millions of dollars spent on opposition research. It's the same public smearing in the media. It's the same dirty tactics. It's the same skeletons. They're just in different closets. We may sometimes find ourselves aligned as Christians with them on certain issues. But a lot of times they can hardly be called good. Not the way the Bible frames it. Not at all the way the Bible frames it. Joseph used his power for the good of everyone. Even the pagans. And sometimes I wonder as Christians whether we want the power so that we can do good or whether we just want the power so we can be in charge. What we do with power and the corners that we're willing to cut to get it show us our character. It shows us whether the attitude of Jesus is really in here. Let me close with a story. Nelson Mandela was an outspoken opponent of apartheid in South Africa. And the apartheid system of 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 community and government enforced a system of segregation and discrimination against non-whites in the country. Mandela was the leader of a resistance movement, and as his political thinking started to grow and change, he started to move more and more towards advocating violence. He even went out of the country for a while to train in military tactics for the organization that he led. And while his organization said that their stated opinion was to create, or a stated uh, purpose was to basically create social havoc for the purpose of change, and 
while they tried not to harm anyone when they would do the things that they would do, that still inevitably happened. Mandela was eventually captured. He was arrested, and he was thrown into Robin Prison, which is an island prison off the coast of South Africa, and he would spend the next 27 years of his life in pretty difficult conditions. The cell that he was placed in was a cell that was small enough that when he laid down in it, the head, uh, his head and his toes would touch the length of the cell. He would go for a month at a time in solitary confinement. And the times that he wasn't in solitary confinement, he was doing hard labor in the limestone quarries. You would think that during this time, as Mandela has taken in all this indoctrination and as he has advocated for violence for the purpose of change, you would think that this time in prison would have hardened him in this direction, that he would have been planning at every moment and communicating outside the prison in every way that he could to create more violence for the purpose of change. But that is actually not what happened. He went through those 27 years in prison and came out a different man. I don't know what his spiritual state was. I don't, I don't know his religious convictions or anything about them. But his time alone in prison gave him an opportunity to reflect. He eventually befriended his captors in prison. And when he was released from captivity after 27 years, he underwent a a meteoric rise to power because he was elected president of South Africa. And that was a moment to discover what kind of character had really been forged inside of him. How was he going to steward that power? When he first took office, the existing people there were afraid that there would be immediate reprisals. And there were people in Mandela's own camp that said, great, we're in charge now, it's time for payback. And Mandela refused to take that direction. Rather than taking revenge, Mandela spread a message of reconciliation and forgiveness. And in doing so, he achieved a racial harmony in South Africa that no one would have thought it was imaginable. This is just a small country in the grander scheme of the world and the broader sweep of time. Mandela is just a man. Joseph was just a man. But Jesus is in this process, the Bible tells us, of reconciling all things in heaven and earth to himself. Jesus is using his power to bring about your good. And it is a good that you are going to experience if you have put your faith in Christ 
to the remainder of eternity. And because Jesus uses His power that way, we praise Him this way, according to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1. We will praise Him with the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Joseph's God. Your God. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to express our gratitude to you this morning that as though you are all powerful, you are all good. That you are right now, even in these moments, working out all things for the good of those who love you, for those who are called according to your purposes. We want to thank you and praise you that though we are deserving of your just judgment, you instead show us grace. You use your power to demonstrate your forgiveness, your salvation to resurrect us to newness of life. If there is someone here who feels trapped by the power of their sin, I pray that you would help them to feel freed by the power of God. And Lord, as a people called by your name, you've called us to have the same attitude that you have, the same attitude that Jesus has for us. And so I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and use, steward, the power and influence that you have given us for the good and flourishing of those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.